The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, friends. My name is Nathan Carden. If I've not had a chance to meet you, I'm the lead pastor here. Welcome on site and those to you online as well. You know, like many of you, my heart's been very heavy this week with great concern for what's happened in Turkey and Syria with the devastating earthquake. The last count I saw, over 20,000 people have lost their lives or are unaccounted for. And it's really one of the worst natural disasters and humanitarian crises in the last century. Um, and there's just so much heart, heartache there for people who have lost loved ones and lost their livelihoods. And their lives are forever changed. And I just thought it might be appropriate for us to pause for a moment to pray for those who are affected and those who are there to try to bring some help uh, in the midst of hardship. Can we pray? God, thank you for caring about what happens to your creation and to each person who lives in the world. And we know, God, as much as our hearts have been moved by the things that we've seen and heard about, that your love is deeper than ours and your compassion is stronger than ours. And you, uh, God, your heart has been broken this week. So we pray for mercy and for help. And we're grateful today for those who are able to be present uh, in the midst of the the great hardship. Give them courage and strength and to know exactly what to do. And God, if there's a way that you could use us here in Alabama to be a blessing to them uh, through generous giving and trying to remember them in prayer, enable your church here to be with them in spirit as they try to relieve suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two dimensions to friendship. The first is trust, loyalty, confidence, steadfastness. But the second is joy. And you really can't have a complete healthy friendship without having both of these together. We all have people that are fun to be around, but they really can't be counted on in a moment of need. And then we know people who we have confidence and trust in them, but we don't particularly find it pleasurable to be around them all the time. To be a true friend is to experience both the giving and receiving of both of these qualities. Last week, we began our series by figuring out where do these qualities come from? And they come from our Creator. From the very first page of the Bible, in the first chapter, when God's making the world on the sixth day, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea and all the other animals. And so in verse 27, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them, male and female, God created them. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, at least in part, we recognize that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. God is Trinity, which means tri, three, and unity, one. And because God is triune, that means God is loving friendship just as God's self God as Father, Son, and Spirit is in mutually loving and submission in their relationship for all time. So, it's interesting that the first human who's made completely perfect immediately longs for friendship. And God says it's not good that the human should be alone. That sense of longing didn't mean that the human being was inadequate, but that the human being was like God because God longs for loving friendship. So, you and I are made like God for deep, satisfying, life-giving friendships. 
But we live in a time where there's a radical paradox at play. Unlike any other time in human history, our communication can be worldwide and immediate. That's never happened before about 100 years ago. But we use it primarily for the exchange of information. And friendships, deep, meaningful friendships, have actually declined statistically based on the data so that the communication as the foundation for deep kinship and rich relationship building is actually pretty scarce. So an article in, published in a survey Center for American Life in May of 2021 noted this. Signs suggest that the role of friends in American social life is experiencing a pronounced decline. And they go on to note that from the time of measuring the data from 1990 to 2020, there was a two-thirds reduction in the number of adult friendships the average respondent reported to have. They go on to say nearly half or 47% of Americans report having lost touch with at least a few friends over the last 12 months. Well, that was published in May of 2021. So certainly the shutdown and isolation of the pandemic is a reflection of that statistic. But they also said that it was an increase in the use of technology for communication, which is impersonal. And Americans are working more into the evening because of remote learning, which squeezes out any time for friendship, leisure, and time with friends. In this age, we have lost the art of making and keeping deep friendships. Now, some people will hear that data, and I, I think some people will say, yeah, okay. I probably don't keep in touch with my friends as much as I used to, but I'm an independent person. I'm not weak or needy. I don't have to cling to somebody else for my sense of self-worth, and I can stand on my own two feet. It's nice to see other people and get together, but I don't really need that. Well, as the writer Nick Connor wrote, you and I are not Bear Grylls who goes out into the mountains, the desert, or the rainforest, gets dropped off in desolate isolation, and has to figure out how to survive alone. We are not made that way. C.S. Lewis offered a different way of thinking about survival and friendship when he said, friendship has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which gives value to survival. And what I want to offer you today is a word of hope, not just a word of diagnostic gloom that friendships are on the decline, but rather a word of biblical instruction and hope about friendship from the book of Proverbs. Now, some of you are very familiar with the book of Proverbs, but others of you may say, you know what, I know it's in there, but I haven't read it in a while. It kind of exists with two other books of the Bible as a kind of genre of literature called wisdom literature in the Old Testament, with the book of Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes and Job. And each one of them presents a different perspective on what it means to live a wise life of faith. And so all three of these books answer these kinds of questions. What kind of world are we living in? So there was a lot of description of the world. And then secondly, what does it look like to live well in that kind of world? So the book of Proverbs is not written like a narrative story about a character in the Bible. And it's not also written by like one of Paul's epistles, which has kind of a constructive, linear way that he's making an argument. Instead, Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. It's like faith-based advice or counsel, and it covers all kinds of topics, work, sex, relationships, money, integrity, and many others. And the primary purpose of all of Proverbs is that it is primarily concerned with the formation of a person of faith and their character. And so it opens up this way in chapter 1. 
the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding in Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of this kind of knowledge. That doesn't mean that we're quivering in a frightening state of, oh no, God's out to get me but rather we live in a healthy respect that God sees and knows how we are living and it is wise for us to make decisions based on that knowledge. I heard two things in those seven verses. The first is that wisdom is something that is provided to us from God. And second, you see it there in verse 5, that wisdom is something that we choose to apply. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get Guidance. And so here in the Proverbs, I'd like to offer you three comments about the value of friendship. First comes from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. Would you read this with me? Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Well, it doesn't really say anything about friends, but it warns against the um, concern or the, the danger of being isolated. There are some other translations that do mention whoever isolates himself from friendship or whoever breaks out against the counsel of their friends. The first thing that you see here is that when it comes to friends, we have a choice. Now, this isn't true of your family. You are stuck with those people whether you like it or not. It's not true necessarily of your neighbors. You buy a house and have wonderful neighbors and they up and move, and you get weirdos. <laughs> you don't know about your co-workers. You join this healthy work environment, and then a person leaves, and a new person comes, and whoa, didn't sign up for that kind of work relationship. You're assigned to a class in your educational settings, and you don't always get a choice, but with your friends, you do. And here Proverbs says, be wise in choosing to relate to people, and don't isolate yourself from people. What's the big danger here? Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Another translation says, loners who care only for themselves spit on the common good. In other words, reject what the common wisdom is, those who are loners and care only for themselves. All of us know with any kind of life experience that sometimes there's great wisdom in having to make a decision, thinking about what you would do, and then running it past someone else to get their feedback before you make the final decision. But further, I think there's a greater danger here of not just making decisions by ourselves, but here's the great danger. If we isolate ourselves and reject the counsel and the feedback, the echo of other people, we might just begin to believe what we think. And believing what we think can sometimes be different than believing what reality is. I know of a family, know them well, who has a student. And while that student was in middle school, the student had a series of months where they were struggling. 
They were struggling with discouragement, sadness. They had some struggles in their relationships. Their grades were beginning to drop. They lost interest in some of their hobbies and activities, and something wasn't going right with this student. And the parents took notice. And they went to the physician, and they got some assistance and help, and the student seemed to be kind of heading on the right path. But the mother said something very wise to this student. It's okay sometimes for you to be sad. God has given us our emotions, and sometimes feeling sad is a part of the whole of life. It is okay for you to feel sad. It's also okay sometimes for you to want to be alone. We all need some time by ourselves sometimes to recharge our batteries or clear our head. Totally fine for you to be alone. But you may not be sad and alone. You hear? You may not be sad and alone because you may just begin to believe what you think. And if your thoughts are not being well-rounded and offered truth and consideration by other wise people that care about you, you may be heading down a path of trouble. That's a warning. The second proverb comes in chapter 17. A friend, would you read this with me? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. All of us, I think, have friends that are just the fun ones. And they're the ones that it's easy to celebrate, and they can swim in the deep end of all of the great moments of celebration and fun of our life. They're a tremendous addition to the cocktail party or to the tailgate or to the girls' weekend or the guys' weekend. But a true friend, says Proverbs, is not just one who accepts an invitation to the celebratory moments of life that are easy and fun, but they show up without invitation to a time of darkness in your life so they can shine a little bit of light. Now, I think most of us have experienced the richness of steadfast friends, loyal friends, especially in a moment of need. But there was a beautiful story that I learned about just recently from Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis is a well-known um, kind of a, uh, an idea person. He writes a lot of books and writes a lot of commentaries about social matters. And he, if you're familiar with the movie Moneyball, he wrote the book behind the movie Moneyball. Well, Michael Lewis and his family experienced a great sudden tragedy in May of 2021. He's depicted here with his family, and he's kissing the forehead of his daughter, Dixie. And sadly, tragically, she and her boyfriend were killed in a car accident late one night in May of 2021. And recently, I heard an interview with Michael Lewis in which he was sharing about his experience of that great loss and the grief that followed. And here's what he observed in a story he told. The most emotional moments came when people insisted on simply being there. Now, my instinct, he admitted, before this, if this had happened to a friend, I would have probably hidden myself. I wouldn't know what to say, and I didn't want to show up and bother them and burden them with, you know, I need you to know that I care, but I don't know what to do, and I wouldn't have, so I would have avoided them altogether. He said, but let me give you an example. Dixie died late at night, and I got the news in the morning, and word, of course, began to spread quickly among our friends and family, and within an hour, my friend Dave Eggers, who lived just across the bay from me, was sitting on my front porch. He had bought some food. And I went out there, and he was just sitting there crying. 
And he stood up and said, I'm not leaving. I'm not going to bother you. I'm going to sit out here or in my car. But I'm not leaving. Michael said, I would have never thought that it would be something I would have wanted, but in retrospect, it was the perfect gift. Just to feel that feeling of being connected by somebody who was saying, I don't know how to help you. I can't help you. But I'm going to be here anyway. He says, Dave has such a gift for being a human being, and he taught me something in that moment. If you love this person, let them know it right there. Because the essence of their loss is the feeling of the loss of love. And you have to insist that the emotion is there in a different way for that person. And then he concluded, Dave is a talented writer, but a wonderful friend, a wonderful friend. Did you catch how the writer of Proverbs says, a brother is born for a time of adversity? In other words, you begin as a friend, but when that great moment of need comes, you are transformed into family. I'll not speak for Michael Lewis in this observation, but I would wager that he considers his friend Dave Eggers family. The third quality of friendship that we hear about in Proverbs comes in chapter 27. This one's a little different. I'd invite you to read it with me. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. Read that for a second. What do you think the author is trying to say to us? Have you ever observed a friend who's, who was acting out of character or they were thinking wrongly about a situation or maybe they were hurting someone else but maybe didn't know it themselves and you thought to yourself, I should probably tell them but that's probably going to upset them. I think I'll keep that to myself. I think I've been guilty of that. And the author of Proverbs says, you're not a true friend, Nathan. Because better is open rebuke or correction than hidden love or withheld love. Because, he says, it is better to be wounded by the truth from a friend, a true friend, than to be flattered by the lies of an enemy. An influential writer that I read a lot of his books, Gordon MacDonald, in my own devotional life, says, there's a certain niceness to friendship where I can be, as they say, myself. But what I really need are relationships in which I will be encouraged to become better than myself. It's nice to feel at ease and to feel comfortable in our own skin around someone else who accepts us as we are, but do any of us want to stay precisely the same person that we are today? True friend, says Proverbs, will help you know the truth that you may grow. Now you may think initially, I don't need somebody else's judgment in my life. Well, this isn't judgment. This isn't judgment. Even though we're being called out, it's not judgment, and here's why. Judgment or judgmentalism comes from a relational outsider. 
Somebody who doesn't have a relationship with us, they've just noticed something and they want to be critical or they want to straighten us out or they want to feel better than us, and so they offer a word of truthful correction. And that's unwelcome. That's not what this is. This is honest feedback from a relational insider. And in the scriptures, they call that accountability. It is someone I have given permission to call me out. So a true friend won't just tell us what we want to hear, but will know when and how to tell us what we really need to hear. So, do you have a friend in your life who has permission to call you out when you are acting out of character or wrong in your thinking or maybe hurting someone else but you don't know about it? Why would you accept it? Because that person has demonstrated already over the history of your relationship, they have demonstrated, I have your best interests at heart. And therefore you say, I'm willing to listen to what you have to say, even if it's difficult for me to hear. At first, I'm going to sit with it and process it and see whether or not I believe you're right. I'd like to look at an example in Jesus Christ for when he does this to one of his close friends. In John chapter 13, Jesus is gathering at the Last Supper with his disciples. And it's a very intimate conversation with Jesus. He will be betrayed. He will be arrested in just a few hours. And he'll be abandoned by the people at this table. But yet, he says these words. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told you, I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. How do you think it felt for Peter to hear that word of truthful diagnosis of his friendship? Later that night, after they've been in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will have been arrested. And he's taken in chapter 18 to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. So here's just a brief synopsis of what happens here in the latter part of chapter 18. Jesus has been arrested and is being interrogated at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter follows and is standing outside the courtyard gate, warming himself around a charcoal fire. He is recognized and denies knowing Jesus. And after the third denial, he hears the rooster crow. In one of the other gospels that's telling this story, it says, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. But that's not the end of the story because God never leaves us alone to our own devices. That happened on Thursday night. On Friday night, Jesus dies and stays in the tomb Friday night and Saturday, but on Sunday morning, our, the Heavenly Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raises Him to new life over death. And what does Jesus do? He goes and pursues where His disciples are. 
They've left Jerusalem. They've headed 90 miles north to Galilee. And Jesus is standing on the beach waiting for the disciples to return from fishing. And when they come aboard or come, come ashore, Jesus is cooking breakfast for them over what? A charcoal fire. He asked Peter directly, personally, three times, do you love me? Why three times? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. But Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. But do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. Because Jesus is giving Peter an opportunity to reconcile with him after having abandoned him. Now, what's interesting to me about the connection of a charcoal fire at Peter's denial and a charcoal fire at, Jesus, at Peter's reconciliation with Jesus is sometimes the things we smell take us back to those memories. I don't think Peter could smell a charcoal fire for the rest of his life without remembering his great abandonment of Christ and then remembering the amazing grace that was shown to him. And I don't know if you caught it, but in chapter 13 and here in chapter 21, these conversations are happening both within the context of a group meal. The other disciples are around, but yet, there's not a hint that Jesus would say in John 21. You know, Peter, since we're here, does ever, who all remembers our dinner last Thursday night? Do you remember anything that I said to Peter? You know, I told you, Peter, that you would deny me three times before the roost, but no, no, you didn't believe me, did you? Well, maybe the next time that I tell you that you're a worthless friend, maybe you'll believe me. I'm going to give you a second chance this time. But I want everybody here to wreck. Even the narrative depicts it in the context of a group as an intimate conversation between two persons. Jesus is not embarrassing Peter. It's an act of truthful, gracious forgiveness and friendship. I have to believe that Peter, that that was one of the most significant moments in his spiritual journey. And I think that's why he could write in his first letter, chapter 4, to the community. Above all, love each other, because love covers what? A multitude of sins. Peter had experienced an incredible act of friendship from the living Son of God who had been resurrected from death after he'd been betrayed and abandoned. And for the rest of his life, he knew what it meant that a friend who offers open rebuke, those words, those wounding words, are more valuable than the flattery of someone who's not our friend. Three instructions from the book of Proverbs, warning against isolation, telling us that a true friend can be trusted in times of adversity, and here even, that a friend should be trusted to speak the truth to us when we need to hear it. So how, friends, do we reclaim the lost art of friendship? It's by asking ourselves in light of these teachings and Proverbs, what kind of friend am I becoming to others? And secondly, what kind of friends am I out there looking for? Because I have a choice. And I believe to you and I offer you for your consideration today, that Christians are the most well-equipped people for deep friendships. Not because we're all inherently nice, because our personalities are so charming, but rather because everyone longs at their heart to be deeply known and deeply loved, or fully known and fully loved. 
And you and I will never be more deeply and fully known and more deeply and fully loved than by Jesus Christ, who is the friend of sinners. And when you respond to his offer of relationship to become a close, intimate friend of his, you begin to look for those kinds of qualities in other friends, and you begin to model those kind of qualities as a friend to others. I hope that you will consider in the response to his invitation to friendship today. May we pray. We thank you today, God, for these words of wisdom and instruction to us about true and deep friendship. And we are bold enough to believe today that in the midst of a world which has so many things that seem to cut against the grain of deep friends, that the church is the place, the new kind of community that you are calling into being in the world, which models a kind of kingdom community and friendship that you had in mind all along. May we think about the way that Christ has been a friend to us, knowing us and loving us fully and deeply. And may that become the model and inspiration for how we relate to others. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people say, Amen. The church at Rossbridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. Thank you.